women will go drop $125 to get a mani-pedi, but they won't drop $65 for me to teach you how to kill somebody. I'm just saying like, where's the value in that? Like I'm teaching you to protect your babies, protect your kingdom, protect your castle, your empire, everything you invested life into. You said that you are going through a transitionary period. It sounds might be a, a way to put it lightly. Talk to me about where you're coming from, where you're trying to get to, and I guess all of these walls that are popping up to get in the way. Yeah. So I, I think when I had this vision for my business, I think this, I want to imagine this is what happens to all business owners as you get this downloaded vision and it's grandiose and it's glorious. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is going to be the best thing ever. And you can see like the whole picture. You can see what the end result's going to look like. And you're like, great, I'm just going to do it. And then you get into it and it's just wall, obstacle, barrier, like repeat. And when I started this last year, I did have this big vision of wanting my own like women's specialized training facility. I want to create a place for women to come that's not intimidating. It's not stressful where I can introduce firearms to them. I can introduce personal protection to them in a completely different way, like breaking the mold of the industry. You walk into gun stores and ranges and it is very intimidating. No fault to the industry, but it's masculine driven. And for women, that's really scary to walk into, especially when you take a woman who is maybe a single mother or you take a woman who has come out of a domestic violence um, or traumatizing situation and then you insert them into the gun industry, there's a lot of pressures that come with that a lot. There's a lot of fears. So when I have this vision of wanting to create this, an environment, a community, not even just like a business, I'm like, this is going to be great and this is how I'm going to do it. And I went out there and I tried to get commercial leasing last year and I just got denied. And then I found a place where I'm like, okay, great. They were all about it. We went through this like month long process. And at the very end, after wasting time and my money, the owner of the building was like, actually, never mind. I don't believe in your business and I don't want to give you this space and just pull the rug out from under me. So I'm like, okay, I guess that's not what God wants for me right now. And then fast forward, I'm doing everything I can to like get the business off the ground, right? And you're reinvesting your, your money into it and you're bleeding yourself dry. And I think everybody has this vision that like you're a business owner, so you must be loaded when I think we all know that's not the case. You are broke every day. All of your time and money goes back into the business. So now fast forward a year and I'm just like on this path of being extremely obedient and trusting where God's taking me and praying on it. And I have this confirmation that this is what he wants me to do. And it's just been trials and tribulations. Everything that I've tried to do to bring things forward, like something else happens that sets me back. And now I'm in this like rapid transition where I have to relocate and I have to set new roots. And I know it's like for the good of wanting it's like God pushing you out of the nest and being like, okay, like you can do it. Go do it now. And we want it all to be on our timing. We're like, no, I can't do it yet because I need this and this first. We're like, 
oh, we, we can't have kids yet because all these other things aren't in place. And I think life comes in and it's no, it's going to happen the way that we want it to happen. And it's just like a really uncomfortable season of just learning and trying to figure out like, how am I supposed to do this thing? And how do I fulfill this vision when everything that I am needing to fulfill that vision isn't falling into place and you have society pushing back against you, you have the industry pushing back against you. You have the market and the economy, right, pushing back against you. And it's just, it's a tough place to be in and it, you get to the point where you're, you have to ask yourself, is this what I'm meant to be doing? Is this what I'm supposed to keep doing? Or do I quit and do something else because it's hard, which isn't, of course, what we want to do. That's not what I want to do. It's just one of those seasons where it's everything is working against me instead of like for me that makes sense. I feel like people who don't own businesses have this very misguided view of what being maybe an entrepreneur or like a small business owner actually is. Because like you said, on the surface, it's, oh, maybe they've got a ton of money, they're making all these sales. But the reality behind the surface of many small businesses, it's a founder, maybe two founders that are literally fighting for their lives like they're they have this vision about how the future ought to look whether that be the other people's future whether it's their own future what have you and there is just everything in the way like the entire way that the world is and where they're trying to get are two different places and reconciling those are it's difficult it's not an easy thing i think what makes great entrepreneurs is recognizing, hey, there's all these things in my way and I'm still going to succeed in spite of those because yeah. that's like working through having minimal resources, having not a lot of money. That is what makes the business, the story, the journey so great. And some people that really turns them off, That's they use that as an excuse to not do it. But I think that there is a certain small portion of people that view that as, oh, no, it's it, this is happening, whether whether other people like it or not. These things are just going to have to change and it, maybe it will take more time. Maybe it'll be more money, but it will get there eventually. Yeah. And I think as, especially to your point about people who don't understand entrepreneurship or what it goes into small businesses. And I think this is probably a pet peeve for a lot of business owners is First of all, you don't go into firearms and teaching personal protection for the money. Like you're never going to be well off trying to teach people how to shoot guns. And sometimes I like to joke, like women will go drop $125 to get a Manny Petty, but they won't drop $65 for me to teach you how to kill somebody. I'm just saying like, where's the value in that? Like I'm teaching you to protect your babies, protect your kingdom, protect your castle, your empire, everything you invested life into and $65 is too much, but we'll go drop a grand on Botox or something like our value system. And I get like, these comments sometimes. I Actually, this lady just commented on my enhanced concealed carry class that I have, which my price is competitive with the Valley. I didn't choose. The price was already set before I even got here. And she's like, this is a ripoff. And I'm like, a ripoff? Like I'm, first of all, I make all my classes inclusive for women. I want the experience to be where you show up. If you've never touched a gun before, 
if you're brand new or you have a gun and you just don't know what to do with it, like you show up, I take all the stress, all the guesswork out. You don't have to go, you don't have to bring a gun. You don't have to go buy ammo. You don't have to figure out what ammo you need. I have all your protection, everything that you need, right? You just show up. Nobody else does that. It's included in the price. And she says, as a ripoff, I said, okay, if you can provide, tell me who else in the Valley is giving you your enhanced concealed carry license. You're including your range fees, your gun, your ammo, all your personal protection, your legal fees, all included in that price. And I will match it. Like, tell me who's doing this for cheaper and I will gladly match it. And I had, and I felt, I was like really hurt. I'm like, what, what am I doing wrong? Like, how else can I make this better for you? And that was the first comment. And then I actually ended up getting like this flood of people who like came to my defense and were like, it is great. She's a great instructor. Like you, you don't go to the cheapest person, especially when it comes to firearms. This is a big deal. You should want to invest in the value. But it's also like this is 14, 15 years of my life, putting my life on the line to learn everything that I'm learning to then come back and give that information to you. And I'm sorry that $125 is too much for 14, 15 years as my experience out in the real world doing the things that less than 1% of America does. And that's a ripoff to you. That's It's painful to hear that when you're, you can't even pay rent and you're viewed as I'm ripping people off. There is certainly a, a large cohort of people who are not your customer. That is for sure. And that sounds like she she might be the poster child for people who are not your customer. There are a couple interesting things that, that you said. One, I think that it's a great sign. You talked about like building this community of women that care about this thing. And I think that other people rushing to your aid like we live in this era of like social media. It's just like close to mob mentality almost, but it, sometimes it can be used for good. When people rush to, that is a very good sign to me that you are making a positive impact on people. Like you have made such an impact on other women that they want to then defend you. Like go out of their way to say something like that is first off, like that's awesome. And that's that sounds like traction in a really meaningful way. The second thing, too, is that it's interesting that people want to talk about costs and worry about costs when, one, you do have all of this experience. You've got this massive background in weapons and ready to teach. Like That is a huge experience is expensive, and you're ready to overcome that kind of gap for them. And then, two, how can you put a price on, like you were saying before, protecting your family? What is that? Is that worth two manicures or whatever the cost is? <laughs> yeah. And especially as a female, like I, I right now, like at, at being able to be a female instructor teaching other women, there's a lot that I can help women overcome because I lived it myself. I had instructors early on. I had moments in my career where no fault to men, it's not knocking the men. We just learn differently and we receive information a little differently. Our bodies are built differently. I have to teach my women how to hold a gun and do things a little differently to use their body and the muscles that they have and their stature work for them rather than against them. That some men don't have that same the obstacles to overcome. And when you can have somebody who can relate to you on a completely different level, um, it heads differently. You can receive information differently. And I think one of the things I know we were we had talked about in the past. It's just like the societal norms. I 
why are you teaching women how to shoot guns anyway? Like you're a Christian conservative, traditional woman, Amanda, like why are you trying to empower women to be independent and defend themselves? I'm sorry, but are you with your wife 24 seven? Are you guys attached at the hip all the time? You are? Oh, sorry. You're asking me. No, not at all. Okay, so sometimes your wife does leave the house and goes and runs errands, right? Yes, I don't know absolutely. about you, but I imagine sometimes you guys have to court ways during the day. And of course. Sometimes your wife might be out running errands with your kids, right? At the grocery store or the mall or picking them up from school or wherever. So as a society, we put all this emphasis on men being the protectors. But I have a lot of women that are like, oh, I don't need that. Like my husband has a gun or my husband carries. I love that for you. And I love that your husband does that or your boyfriend or your spouse or whoever. But what about when you're not there? What, who's protecting you when he can't be there? Who's protecting you when he's at work? 80% of break-ins happen during the day and through the front door. And yes, who traditionally primarily is home during the day. Women with their kids are home. Who's going to protect you then? If you d- can't protect yourself and your family when he can't be there, how are you coming together as a cohesive unit? It's not about taking the power away from men. It's about a balance of protection within the family. It's about knowing that you can rely on your spouse and your spouse can rely on you. And if you do have an intruder break into your house in the middle of the night or somebody in the backyard or somebody comes up to you with a gun and tries to rob you, do you each have your trusted roles and responsibilities and you know how to work together as a team and you don't get into fight, flight, or freeze? And then God knows what happens then. And we don't put that value as a society on the whole unit. It's just men either do this or it's the feminist viewpoint of I'm a woman and I don't need a man. And that's not what I want to teach. In your experience, what has been the major reason why women have not wanted to come and learn weapons handling, self-defense, what have you, from you? Is it cultural driven? Is it, and falling into that, we've got like gender roles, et cetera. Is it fear of a weapon? Maybe that's not something that they're comfortable with. Maybe they grew up and have never been around weapons. Maybe there's other things that I'm missing there, or maybe it's just anti-weapon. There's so many different reasons I'm sure that you could come up with, but I guess in your business, what are you seeing as the major driver for why women will not do it? Yeah, that's a good question. The first thing that I've seen, the, a major topic of conversation, is the intimidation factor in this year. And I say that because the number one reason why women do come to me is because they say, my husband or somebody bought me this gun and it's just been sitting and I'm scared to use it. Or my dad took me shooting when I was younger and I really don't know much about it. The way that our society is changing with all these shifts and violence is on the uprise. We see a lot of defunding of police, right? Which is leaving a lot of communities in vulnerable places. If I take all the reasons why women want to come and train and why they come to me specifically is because they have the fear and intimidation to go to somebody else. They say all the time, like, I can't work with my husband because we just fight. He can, every time he tries to tell me how to shoot a gun or teach me how to do this thing, he's just do it this way. 
And she's, I don't understand what you're saying. And he's like, why don't you understand what I'm saying? Just do the thing. And that creates an issue. And I get that a lot from couples who just, they can't go out shooting together and they can't like teach each other how to do something. So there's that factor. There is the big intimidation factor. It's the fear of not understanding the gun. And it's so cliche to say this when people say guns don't kill people, kill people. But if you have a good training, gun safety, gun control, I'm not saying gun elimination, but gun control is important. And you can understand how a gun operates and how to live around and with a gun or some kind of weapon. A lot of that fear is going to be removed. And in some of my training, in my intro training, I go through that and I ask them, what are some of your fears? Are you scared that your husband's gun, if he leaves it on the nightstand or holstered inside your nightstand or wherever, that it might just go off? Yeah, I, I am. Okay, great. Let's talk about that. Let me draw you out the whole cycle of how a gun operates and works so that way you can remove the fear and that understanding that unless A through Z happens, that gun is not going off. And one of the examples I love to talk about in this, in the fear factor, is the media wants to push the agenda of gun elimination, right? In our country, I think that we all know that. If guns were just randomly popping off on people's nightstands or in their purses or in their cars or on the table or in safe boxes or whatever, right? Just randomly going off. Don't you think we would see that on the media? Don't you think the media would love to use that to weaponize gun control and gun elimination in our country? I think that's fair to say. So if we're not seeing that and that's not happening, then that's probably a good indication that's not an inexistent fear. So just examples like that of the fear of because it is so dangerous, the lack of confidence that we have in ourselves, because traditionally we've been put in a place to not have that confidence and the intimidation factor. You walk into a gun store and I love the guys that that we work with locally, but at the end of the day, everybody wants to make a sale and they want to sell women the smallest, cutest, compact, prettiest gun because it's pink or purple or Tiffany blue. But the small guns are the hardest to shoot. Do you see snipers sniping with compact little guns? We don't. We see snipers with long, long rifles, long barrels, because the longer the better the accuracy. So why are we putting the smallest, hardest gun in a woman's hand? There is so much in the media that is just very, it's just blatant anti-weapon is really what it is. You can put any rhyme or reason on why, but on why you think it may differ from that, but there is just not really much reasoning with that. Let's say that you are put in charge of gun control, like all gun policy for the United States tomorrow. Is there anything that would be on top of your mind that you think is worth addressing from where we are currently? Oh, gosh. Main topics that I think of that are usually the most contentious are automatic weapons, magazine size, the concealed carry, maybe a little bit less so. Those are, I feel like, the big ones that are at the top of my mind. But I'm curious maybe if there's something from your time in industry. And in a minute here, I'm going to, we'll get into a little bit of your backstory. But I'm curious from your experiences, there are things that should be different from where we are. Absolutely. I think it's, important to preface and i'm not afraid to share my views or opinions or like my political beliefs or 
controversial things. Coming from a place where I worked for the government and then now being a civilian, I do think that there is a bigger agenda on why our government doesn't want the civilian population to have guns, right? That we, we just know that's a whole topic in itself of the control factor. Trying to manipulate and control how many rounds you can have in a magazine or the length of your barrel or if it's a pistol brace or not, those are just the semantics because they can't take guns away yet. So they're trying and they're just grasping at straws to control every little thing they possibly can and use every example against us to say, see, this is why it's bad. This is why it's bad. This is why we don't want you to have guns. But if we look at most at recent active shooters, they happened in states and cities where there was elimination, where the civilian population can't have guns. They can't conceal carry. We have this big agenda on gun elimination. And I'm not saying, like I said before, that we shouldn't have gun control. Do I think that we should have background checks? Do I think that there should be very strict procedures on who can buy a gun and how? And should that be tracked somewhere? And the whole system to go with that? Absolutely. I'm not saying it should just be a free-for-all like the Wild West, but taking guns away from people, especially when you have the same government pushing defunding our local law enforcement and in uh, um, remote areas that you can call 911 and guess what? Oh, it's going to take 27 minutes for a police officer to get to you. Uh, okay, I'm dead by then. We want to remove police from responding. We don't want to give our communities what they need to keep them safe. And then we also want to remove your guns so you can't be safe. What else is going on here? And it's not like a, not that it's a conspiracy conversation, but let's just look at what the facts are. So like if, if it could be my way, I wouldn't take guns away from anybody, but I would have adequate gun control. And I think all states should be allowed to, I'm not going to say have guns, but it's our, it goes back to our Second Amendment right and the right to bear arms and the right to protect yourself and your family and defend yourself when nobody else is coming for you. Nobody else. I'm sorry. And when I went through the law enforcement academy, one of the first things we learned is legally law enforcement officers actually have no legal obligation to respond to you. They can choose not to and not go to jail for it. That's just like most people don't even know that. I know that I definitely did not know that. We don't want citizens to defend themselves, and we also are going to take away or prevent resources from getting to the people who actually do the protecting. It just, it seems counterintuitive to me. I, I can't really make sense of it. Formers, yep, on the media to create fear-mongering. And what did we see happen during COVID? People losing their minds, stocking up on stuff, thinking that the military and the government was coming for them. So you induce this extreme fear in people, and then you remove all resources that make them feel safe. Now you have people in, in extreme fear with lack of, like I said, the resources to, to remove those fears. You double down on that. And then what do you create? People who just got hyper-focused on these things that, they, that fit the narrative that they want you to believe and now you have just extreme chaos. And we saw that during these lockdowns. I watched my neighbors and friends go into extreme chaos where they weren't even thinking straight for themselves anymore because they were in such fear. And that breaks my heart to see. And you have people who don't 
some states that they weren't exposed to guns, they couldn't have guns, they couldn't have anything to keep themselves safe. And then you put them in a situation that's traumatizing and you break them and then you build them back up. And then you tell them what you want them to believe and you tell them how to live and how to move forward and and live in this culture. And now we have this huge dichotomy in our country. And like, where are we going from here? Your guess is as good as mine. We've got a lot of important things vying for the way that they think it ought to be done. And I think it's important to voice those concerns, like address those. COVID is like a, a very recent example of the fear state that people can be put into when resources, maybe even not even like outside of the weapons conversation, but take away people's toilet paper and essentials like that. And it gets ugly. It's like that is not a state that we ought to be wishing for ourselves in this country. That's like we don't want to go there. And I think that the gun conversation plays into that. There's there's a bunch of other things, too, though, I think. I want to set the stage a little bit more here and get into a little bit of your background. You alluded to you've got all these years of experience. You were in the National Guard. And you were also part of the CIA for a while. Will you give me like a couple of minute backstory from like a high level of what gets you from younger Amanda to up to today? Yeah, I think that typical. I I grew up in a community that was crime ridden and full of poverty and I wanted to get out. I didn't want to keep living the same life that I was watching everyone around me live. I knew when I was like 12. I think I watched Side Kids or something, like all of us. And I was like, I want to do that. So in my mind, I was going to be like a spy kid, right? So I was like, I want to work for the CIA or the FBI. And I like was like, how do I do this? So I like set my sights on it. And I'm like, great. I'm not going to do any of these stupid things that are going to get me into trouble. And when I was 17, I joined the military. That was my running away. I'm going to get out of this crap city. And I'm going to go start a life somewhere else. And I went in, I called my recruiter on Tuesday and I swore in on Thursday. It took me 24 hours to go from A to B. And I was like, how, I just want the job that I can get closest to the front lines. And at that point for women, the closest that you could do was military police. So I'm like, sign me up. That's what I want to do. And then I deployed when I was 19 and then came back. And when I was 22, I had a supervisor that was inappropriate. And we butted heads a lot. And he was like, if you don't want to work for me, go work for somebody else. And I was like, sassy and 22 from New York. And I was like, fine, I will. So I got on the internet and I was like, how to work for the CIA. And I would periodically check. And I just applied. I felt like I was doing something about the unhappiness that I was in. Like people will be like, my job sucks or this sucks. And then they don't do anything about it. Like just applying for the agency made me feel like I was taking agency. I was taking ownership in my unhappiness. And it was so funny because most of my application, I was like, I can't answer this because of OPSEC. I can't answer this because of OPSEC, which is operational security, right? You're not allowed to talk about things. And then I submit my application. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm never getting hired. They don't know anything about me. And then... And I went through the process and then a year later I was working for them. And that was like my 10-year plan. 
And I was like, now what? Because I got my dream job, but I'm 22 years old. This is wild. So I moved down to D.C. and I was in the National Guard, which allows you to work from home where you live two weekends a month or sorry, a week every one weekend a month, two weeks during the year. And I transferred to D.C. and I was able to do both of my jobs simultaneously. I started off in law enforcement. I was a volunteer firefighter. And I just think I always had this like serving heart. And I think that came from being in a community where I just saw a lot of destruction and growing up in a a domestic violence filled home as a little girl, I just wanted to serve and help people. And that was my opportunity to do that. So I went through my career and And one of the things I love about the agency is it's like they push you to experience different jobs and different rotations. So even if there's something like you don't have any experience in knowing how to do, they'll let you go do a job and they'll teach you how to do it. And they'll give you all the training, everything you you need to be able to do that job. So you get a wealth of knowledge throughout your career and a lot of different experiences. So through my 20s, I got to do that and I worked in counterintelligence, counterterrorism. I was in the, I got to work with the best of the best from the special operations world. And that's where a lot of my training and weapons tactics came from, working with our guys who are doing the Lord's work out there protecting our country, honestly. And I got to learn from them. And I had to undo a lot of bad habits that the military taught me. Just investing myself full-fledged into my career, I thought I was going to you know, retire or die in the government and the military. And that was going to be my life. And I was never going to get married. I was never going to have kids. I was never going to have a family uh, because that was the government had my heart. I was literally a slave to it. I knew just told me what to do and I would do it. I was, I don't know, brainwashed because I believed in the bigger picture. Somebody has to do this, right? Like somebody has to do this work so that way everybody else can go around, you know, with their heads and their phones and listening to the radio and gossiping with their friends and shopping and going out on the weekends. Why can you do that? Because we have these people doing these jobs. So fast forward and I did that since I was just in that world since I was 17. It's all I knew. I was a kid with no family and gave every minute of my life to that world. And then now I'm here. Now you're implementing all those things that you learned to teach women to be badasses and shoot and take care of themselves. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I got to the point where God did put it on my heart where maybe I can have a family. Maybe I deserve that too. Maybe I can be a wife and I can have kids. Maybe it doesn't have to be one or the other. And I had gotten into a relationship that I thought would be that for me. And I had to make the decision to give up my career so I could have a family. And I think that's something that a lot of women end up facing in life is they either have to choose between their career or they have to choose a family. And it's really difficult as a woman to have both. And I had to learn that firsthand where I was in this very extreme masculine, independent energy. I think for early in my 20s, I did have the mindset of, I don't need a man because I can literally do everything myself. I make my own money. I pay my own bills. I can protect myself. I can literally kill somebody nine different ways. What do I need you for? Oh, to reproduce? Guess what? I'm not having kids. So what benefit are you to me? I think that's a mindset that a lot of women get into. And I'm not knocking anybody who has that. But I needed a lot of transformation in my heart 
in my life for God to show me that I have more to offer than just my career. And my identity wasn't just rooted in my career. And it wasn't just rooted in what I can give to the government um, or give to the military. There was a lot more of who I was as a person and as a woman. And I had to go through a really tough transition of stepping away from that to invest myself and pour myself into a relationship and trying to become a normal person um, to then lose all of that and then rebuild again. And it was going through all of that loss and all of that pain and all of that betrayal and difficult experience and getting so knocked down and having women come to me at the same time being like, and even friends, I had a Navy SEAL that I worked with and he literally said, Mina, how did you allow yourself to get into that kind of relationship? You of all people, like I, I wouldn't have expected that. And that hurt. That was like a knife to the chest. Oh, I'm sorry. Like I'm supposed to, because I did these things, it just means I'll never be a target for somebody. That's not the truth. And when I had so many women coming to me saying, hey, I'm in this really abusive relationship. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Or pouring their heart out to me and saying, I've never told anybody this before. Can you help me? Or these women being like, I just, I moved here from California and I was never allowed to have a gun. Can you teach me how to have a, teach, teach me how to shoot a gun? Because I'm scared. And I was like, Lord, I'm not equipped for this. What do you want me to be doing with this? And listening to these women's stories, I realized like, I spent my life learning how to protect people. And then I got myself into a situation where I couldn't protect myself with the training I had, the knowledge I had, the experience I had. And then it still happened to me. And my heart just broke for the women that don't have any of that and are in it five times longer. This woman was like, I've been married for 25 years. This is what's going on. And I've never told anybody because I'm so scared of what people will think. What do I do? Help me. And that was just a break in the face for me. And it just, it crushed me. And I'm like, okay, Lord, I see you. What, like, how can I, what can I do with this? How can I equip women to protect themselves? Not just lethally, like physically through lethal and non-lethal measures, but how can I equip women to protect themselves mentally, emotionally, and spiritually? How can we identify abuse before it turns into abuse? How can we help women who are in it recover from it. Women who have lost their identity and have lost their self-esteem, they've lost their voice because they were in these very controlled, manipulative, gaslighting, painful, toxic relationships or marriages. And then they get out of it and they don't know how to function anymore. They don't know how to pay bills because somebody was controlling their finances and never let them spend money. They don't know how to speak up for themselves because they were forced to be docile and meek, which brings you into the, the a tox, toxic femininity stage. We love to talk about toxic masculinity. We don't talk about toxic femininity. So how can I take everything that I learned and then even my own experiences and create this environment and this community and these programs for women to give them their identity back in who God made them, not saying that they don't need men, but how do we have the balance? Do you feel like today that you're able to do both now? You were saying that you felt like you there was a hard line on like you can have the career, you can go and be successful in this way, make the money or whatever it is that's career driven. And then on the other side, you have family, a spouse, whatever that kids, whatever it looks like to you. Do you yeah. think that 
you feel today that you can do both? I do in the sense of, I know now for me personally, I don't want to chase a corporate job. I don't want to climb a corporate ladder and I don't want to be a slave to a job. I want the balance where I know that I have a lot to offer in the on the career side of things, whether it's having a business, but I also have a lot to offer as a woman, a wife or a future wife and a mother one day. And I think of it back until Proverbs 31 woman, like she was an excellent homekeeper, peacemaker, but she also was a, a solid business owner. She was a boss. Like she, you talk about her rising early and going out and providing for her family. And it's not taking away from the a man providing for her family, but you can be both. You can run a business from home and tons of women do that and still homeschool your kids if that's what you choose to do. And have a traditional role where you're providing the the heart of the home while maybe then your husband is the head of the home. And it's not about a submission level, but you can absolutely have both. You don't have to pick, I can only have a career or I can't have a family. Do I agree now with what I know about leaving, destroying the nuclear family? And both people being out working and leaving your kids to somebody else to raise and pushing them to public school. I don't agree with that anymore because of the political agenda of what's being taught to our kids in public school. And I don't want somebody else raising my kids. So if I have to make that decision where I have to give up working so that way I can be the best mother possible for my kids, then that's what I want to do. And that's my decision. But no one's forcing me to make that anymore. And I get to choose where I want to serve and where I want to give my heart. And I can still be nurturing, kind, joyous, peaceful, loving, caring, compassionate, empathetic, all the things that make women so beautiful and still run a business and be a boss at that too. And get to then when I have my husband, I get to turn that off and I get to give him all that masculine energy. And then I get to be feminine and I get to say, okay, take care of me now. Tell me what to do so I can turn it off over here. And I get to have that balance or I, one day. I, I like that approach. And I, I appreciate something that you said and alluding to there is that you're getting to pick and choose, which means that it's a conversation. It's something that is, it's not a binary, like you do this and I do this. It's, hey, this is what's best for me. And I been in a relationship for a few years. I don't have it all figured out by any means, but the most successful couples that I know, it, it's a conversation about, hey, this is what I can bring to the household. This is what you can bring. And then here's how we can make up for each other's weaknesses or counterbalance the strengths, whatever it is. Like, I, I'm, I'm all for the stay-at-home husband if they wants to do that. Like, <laughs> whatever it is that is best for the family unit. And I think that historically it just has fallen from a really old time sake when guys are working in the fields of course they're going to be the ones going to work but it's just is it it's a different time now and that isn't to say you alluded to toxic femininity which i'd love to dig into that but i can't see how everything is just so black and white to people and cuz i know that n no relationship or anything that there's emotion tied to is cut and dry. Like you need to hash it out and work out what's best for you. Yeah. I think that we have to adapt to the culture that we're living in right now and the way that the economy is and those new societal norms. Whereas way back when, 
wages were set at what they were for a single provider household. So men could go out and work and that was enough for them to take care of their family. So that's why we have those traditional roles. Then introduced the 60s and the feminist movement and uh, everything that happened over the, those decades of equal opportunity and women fighting for equal rights. I'm all about that. I'm not saying we shouldn't have equal rights. But what happens when now women start working, those employers started reducing the wages. I don't need to pay you as much anymore because your wife is at work. So now both of you have to work for the same amount of money that he was originally getting paid. So we introduced this. And this is, I think, what caused this huge shift in society over the years. Wages still haven't caught up and women are still fighting for equal wages. But now we live in a society where we're like, okay, pretty much both of us have to work in order to put a roof over our heads. Wages in the country just aren't high enough for one person to go out work and bring the money home. And I think that kind of goes back to the agenda of wanting to divide the nuclear family. And I'm not saying if a woman wants to go out and work and a man wants to stay home, if there's anything necessarily wrong with that, if that works for them, it works for them. But we have to, we're now being forced to shift and compromise some traditional values because it's like, we just have, this is what we have to do. We both have to work whether or not you want to stay home or not, because if we don't, we can't survive. And we am... And I love this example. It sounds like I'm bashing women and I'm not, but the economy loves consumers. Who's the number one consumer? Women. We love to shop. We love to spend. Who really loves to shop? A woman who's sad, going through a breakup, anxious, depressed. We call it retail therapy, right? So when you do everything you can from a government standpoint to divide the nuclear family, to force couples against each other, to create a lot of single women, force this feminist mindset of women don't need men, when biologically and biblically, we do need each other. And then you have women who are single, independent, because I don't need no man. And now they are constantly in this um, repeat cycle of I'm sad, I'm depressed because I'm unfulfilled and I don't know why I'm unfulfilled. So I'm going to go shop. And I'm going to become the number one consumer. And that puts money back into the economy. And then we flood them with anti-anxiety and anti- I know so many women who are on their own, but they're like taking nine different medications. I was on 13 different medications once upon a time. I get it. I know. But like, why do we want to do that? Because we want to divide. And that's going to set the agenda of the government in the country. That's a fully other piece of this, but... That is yeah. a deep tangent there. Femininity as the basis for the consumer, like pro-consumer movement. I can see it. Like it, it makes sense. And it's interesting. I guess I don't know. One of the things that you've brought up a couple of times is you seem convinced that the government is like wanting to, to split this up. And this is all like, I don't want to say it's all a ploy, but like a lot of those things are driving that movement to split up that. What gives you that thought? And like, I see the evidence there, but I'm trying to connect. Hey, why is it that you think that's like this is being driven by some outside force other than 
kind of the ends justify the means sort of conversation. Yeah, I think just looking at historically, looking at that evidence and looking where we're at, and then even in recent years or what we're battling right now with what school systems are pushing with this non-binary or transgender or pushing four-year-olds to get sex changes and teaching porn in schools and taking the authority away from the parent and the family unit on how they want to raise their kids and what they want their kids learning. And it's a lot of, I'm sorry, but a lot of these topics that are massively controversial right now are left-leaning and the right is trying to battle that. And if you look at that, and I am a conservative, I have no shame in saying that. Why would we want our kids to, our future, future generations to be brainwashed with all this information and we take the power away from the, the parents? Because it fits their, their narratives for what the government wants ultimately down the road. So how do we brainwash future generations or how do we train and manipulate the minds of future, future generations? We do it through the school systems. We do it through television. We do it through Hollywood. We do it through music. We do it through everything that these kids are exposed to. How do we get access to the kids? We need to remove the parents. How do we remove the parents? We have to make it so hard for parents to be parents. Parents don't get to be parents anymore. Parents get to be employees. They reproduce and they're employees and they both have to go to work and leave all day and then put their kids in boys and girls club or a nanny or a babysitter or sports, leaving their kids up to somebody else within a school system, unless you're well off enough to go to a private school, maybe, or hire somebody to homeschool your kids, which typically isn't the case. We look at inflation, lack of wages, the percentage of wages increasing, all the things that are going on, forcing us to now be in a place where the parents have to work two times as hard. A man has to go get two jobs and she has to get one job or they have to work overtime and long hours because they, that's what they have to do to pay the bills. So when I look at all this and everything that I've experienced, internal conversations, that that's just, that's my belief stuff. That's how I feel about it. And I think when you point to that, why else would we want to destroy the nuclear family? for control. Why shouldn't, why aren't we pushing, no, let's keep women at home or let's keep families together. We push divorce like crazy. We have the highest divorce rate and we have all these apps and dating apps and all these things to create a society of instant gratification, credit cards, right? Like you can literally get anything you want at the tip of your fingers now. So we're forcing this into society creating a increased debt and we're forcing people to have to now we're a slave to the government we're a slave to the irs we're a slave to taxes we're a slave to credit card debt we're a slave to the school system to our employers and we don't have control over our lives anymore and we sure as shit don't have control or authority over our children anymore and i don't need to have kids to know that what do you think is the antidote for that that's you basically pointed to problems on just about every fundamental level at in our com, uh, country's infrastructure, excuse me. And I, I don't disagree <laughs> okay, on, on, on a lot of those things. That's, you make some very good points. What can we do about that? Because it's very easy to point and say, hey, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. But it's also what we have to work with. And I think abandoning what 
we've built, regardless of whether we're proud of where we're at now or not, would still be a disservice to our history. And I certainly don't think that we're even like adhering to everything that you just said, certainly probably not beyond help or course correcting. So in your opinion, what do you think that we as a country and or individuals ought to be doing or prioritizing to get away from all of that? I couldn't even sum it up. And I don't even know what the one word is, but I'm just going to say all of that. Yeah. I think it starts with taking agency over our lives, first of all, not bandwagoning, not leaning into fear mongering, not leaning into the media, taking ownership and agency over what you can control and your family. And it starts with one, just like doing your own research in what actually is toxic masculinity. Or am I just calling every man I meet now toxic because I see it all over my Instagram. And this guy comes at, I saw this post the other day. This guy asked this girl out and it was somebody that was sharing a conversation. It was a screenshot. And he says, hey, I'm so excited for a date. I'm going to pick you up at this time. We're going to go here for dinner. If things go great, we'll go do this afterwards. How's that sound? That seems pretty appropriate, right? That seems like a man who is pursuing you, courting you, planning a date, wanting to take you out. And she ripped this guy apart. She said that he was being abusive and controlling. And all of her girlfriends jumped in and said that, he, how dare him tell me what time he's going to pick me up and where he's going to take me and what we're going to do after. And I'm like, okay, where is this mindset? We as women want men to be protectors, providers. We want that traditional set from men. But then when a man steps up and he courts us and he pursues us and he treats us with respect and he tries to date us, and play nice things for us, we turn around and call him controlling because we've created a society now of calling men who are leaders, men who are alphas, men who are masculine and strong in their faith and convicted in their beliefs. We call that a toxic now. Toxic masculinity is aggressive behavior, violent abuse, lashing out, somebody who can't control themselves. There's an extreme level. So just taking that as an example, of where society is at. And now when you have a society that's pushing men and women against each other, because we're definitely not trying to bring women together, uh, relationships together. So when you look at just that, the media pushing and Instagram and all these people pushing just toxic masculinity, how many conversations we've had about that. And look how that creates a dichotomy between men and women. It forces women to hate men it forces women to act in more extreme levels, forcing them to be more in a masculine energy. And then it makes men feel like they can't be men because they have to walk on eggshells. I have guy friends who are like, I went on a date and I was literally afraid to open the door for her because I, I this other girl was like, I don't need you to open my door. I can open the door for myself. And it's creating men to, to be in this world where they're like walking on eggshells to just be a, a gentleman to just live in those old school values. So you take something like that and this big push of toxic masculinity and just reaming and ripping into men for just being who they are. And now we're making them feel bad about it. And we're creating this shift. We don't want people to come together. So just look at that example. And then, like I said before, nobody wants to talk about toxic femininity. All these women want to bash men, but we, want, we don't want to talk about women, what women are doing. There is... 
you're touching on so many like really spiny subjects here and I love it. It's so good. Where men are in like our society today is very, it's a very difficult position, I think. And because like you said, any attempt to lean into masculinity and like ownership and like leading, true leading and stuff, it's just, it's shunned. And there's all these studies coming out about men in the workplace being scared to say things because they're afraid of lawsuits and like allegations and things like that. And it's just, that is not good for anybody. Like you said, and I appreciate that you call out the the dangers to both sides is like, one, we're cultivating men who now are going to be trained to not speak up and when they need to. And I think that's one of the underlying things of what you're getting at is the importance of action. But it's also bad for you're training women to hate men. That's not the end objective of this. And it's difficult. And and I fear for the young men that are sitting in impressionable states that are looking for the way to be. And, you know, I've been, I am a big fan of Chris Williamson, who hosts the Modern Wisdom podcast, and he hosts a lot of people that talk about these types of issues. And one of the things he regularly references, these kind of young male idols like Andrew Tate and like people that like are sitting in that category that are, I don't want to say praying, but, but are setting just like the worst kind of example. And it's tough. Like, it's really tough. And I I don't know what the answer is other than to, I like what you said when you're starting out there talking about, we need to take agency. And our generation, I think we're close to the same age, we're very used to like rooting for the underdog and wanting to support the bandwagon of whatever the most disadvantaged community is at the time, whether it be race, whether it be sex, whatever it is. We want to support that. And that's just doing that without the intellectual backing and like having thought of it is just, it's downright dangerous. It is. We just bandwagon. We don't research. We don't learn things for ourselves. We don't figure out, okay, how do I actually feel about that? Am I a woman that I actually, I'm really attracted to a man who pursues me. I want a man who's going to open my door, who wants to take me out, who want, who wants to be a protector and a provider. Like that's attractive to me. Do I actually know that? Or am I just saying that's not attractive to me because that's what everyone around me is saying? Just those small things. I, and I like what you said before about like, you are, we are creating these weaker men. They are becoming more docile. They're becoming more, more weak. They're not speaking up. They're not being leaders in their community. We see it in the church. We see it in the workplace. We see it in the home. And women are becoming more of that energy. Women are speaking up. Women are confrontational. Women are more of the masculine energy. And what happens is when you don't have a man who is strong in himself, secure in himself, is a strong alpha masculine man, and he doesn't provide that for a woman, and he doesn't take lead, it forces a woman to have to do it. And when she doesn't have anyone to lead or to follow, She's going to be in that energy. She's going to be making the decisions. She's going to be doing all these things. She's going to be in more of that aggressive, get things done kind of energy because no one is doing it. And then when women move into that masculine energy, what ends up going away? The softness, 
the gentle, loving, nurturing femininity that makes us so special. And I think it's important to state, too, that masculinity and femininity is not gender specific. Both men and women possess feminine and masculine qualities. It's just a matter of how much each person is having in a specific moment. And men have it really hard right now. I agree with that so much because we're forcing you to not be allowed to be who you are. You can't speak up. You can't yell at the TV during football. You can't go hunting and and go out and do all the things that like make you feel alive. Because if you do, you're faulted for it. And the, the weak, docile, passive aggressive man that we're creating, that leads into toxic femininity. Now we're forcing men to be in this toxic feminine. They can't talk about their emotions. How many times have we heard that a man who cries or a man who talks about his emotions is weak and he's not masculine? So now we're telling people, we're telling men that you're not even allowed to be emotional. And God forbid you get emotional how you're toxic masculine because now you're too emotional. So you're either one extreme or the other. And then women do the same thing. And if you have a toxic masculine man, He's going to create a toxic feminine woman who's so weak, so docile, so meek, doesn't speak her voice, doesn't share, doesn't have an opinion, lacks self-confidence. And now we move to that toxic extreme there because you have this overpowering. And then now you have this, these negative pulls. And it happens the same way, the opposite way where you have women who become very aggressive, where men make those comments. Oh, like my wife wears the pants. I can't do anything unless my wife says, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get yelled at. And then they feel like they're walking on eggshells and they're not grounded in who they are as as men and leaders. So now they're in the toxic femininity and women become the toxic masculinity. And we're only talking about men being toxic in their masculinity and not women. One of the things that you told me leading up to this conversation, you said that people have told you that they feel intimidated to come talk to you. Maybe, I'm not sure if you were referring to men or women or maybe both in this instance, but talk to me about that and how does that play into how we should be thinking about how we carry ourselves maybe as men and women? Yeah, I'm hearing on both sides, uh, women looking at what I did for a living because it's not necessarily the norm for women to do what I do or do what I did. Women to do what I do, shooting archery, riding dirt bikes, like whatever, all these different things that are primarily more male-dominant fields, they don't come off as like approachable in that sense, which I never thought that. I'm like, I'm the nicest person ever. Let's be friends. I'm not about knocking women down. I want to raise women up. I want you to be the the best you could possibly be. And my girlfriends who know me know that now. Why on the side of women who think, oh man, I don't want to go to her because look at everything that she does. And women compete. We, it's just in the nature of what we do. Like she's prettier than me. Her outfit's nicer than mine. Her ring is more expensive than mine. Her house is nicer. It's, I think everybody does that, but women definitely do it going back to the consumeristic side of us. So for women, they look at, my background of what I've done coming from such a male-dominant field, the same way women can become intimidated by strong masculine men, 
I have that working against me. And then when we have everything that we're talking about with men being forced to be in this culture of you can't be alpha, you can't be strong, you can't be, you can't lead, you can't provide, protect. I have men who look at, this is just what I've been told also, this isn't like a, a necessarily my mentality, is that I'm too intimidating to approach or want to date or be with or, or anything in that sense because what can they do that I can't? And it goes into what I was saying when in my earlier 20s. What can they do for me that I can't already do for myself? And or I'm a man and I can't do any of those things. So where's my masculinity? Where's my masculinity derived from? And part of that's my own fault. Like my Instagram is filled with gun pictures. Like I look like I'm constantly ready to kill somebody. And that's not the case. That's not what I'm about. There's so much more to me as a person than those things. And I didn't realize that was the perception that I was giving off for so long. But when you're constantly told, hey, Minna, maybe you should smile more. And I'm like, I smile all the time. What do you think? It gets tough. So that masculine side of things, I was, I will admit, for a period of my life, I was in a very strong masculine energy because I needed, I had to survive. I had to raise myself. I had to go out there and try to hang with the guys and perform at their level and work four times as hard to be just as good as them. If not, I'm good, but I don't get the credit for being good because I'm not respected because God forbid a woman is better at you than something. That makes you feel worse. So just having to constantly fight for, fight and prove myself to people, which now I learned and I know that I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to prove myself to anybody. I can just be who I am and the way that God made me. And I am a loving, nurturing, compassionate person. And it doesn't have to be that way. And it's just trying to shift that perspective in other people. I think you highlighted that something there that is something that everybody needs to hear in a meaningful way is where you derive your masculinity or femininity from. Are you getting it from a place of the things that you do is it the riding the motorcycles? Is it the shooting guns on the women's side? Is it if it's the nails thing, if it's the shopping thing, is that what makes you feel that? Or are you honoring the things that's actually much deeper inside of us and who we are actually designed and meant to be outside of any interests or hobbies or anything like that? I think what you said is a much more potent point and something people should be considering, especially when it comes to talking with people and where you get your energy from. Is that, yeah. are you all of these things that you do or is it more than that? And then being willing to like honor and respect other people's, you got to look that don't judge a book by its cover, that kind of thing. <laughs> don't judge a girl by her Instagram story or <laughs> don't, don't mind these photos, but look beyond that. Because uh, there is so much more to on the side of both men and women. Yeah, absolutely. And the first thing that my brain goes to is our identity should always be rooted in Christ, first and foremost. And I'll, and I'll say that always. And I didn't always know what that meant. Like my what that meant. My identity was rooted in my career. My identity was rooted in what I can do, what I how what my performance level is, how much money I made, can I provide for myself. I thought that a man wouldn't see me as valuable if I couldn't do any of those things. If I couldn't keep up, if I couldn't make my own money, 
I couldn't provide for myself, if I couldn't protect myself, I was convinced that I had no value and no worth to somebody. And it was a really difficult transition to learn that's not the case. And my worth and my value comes from my heart. It comes from my love. It comes from my grace. It comes from my forgiveness. It comes from my nurturing. It comes from all the things that the way that God designed women to be, that I can be in my most feminine, soft, accepting energy. And that's valuable. And that's worthy to somebody. And I can do both. And I can go to work. And I can shoot guns all day and I can teach women how to be badasses and I can come home and I can put that, leave that at the door and I can come in and say, okay, sweetheart, what can I do for you? Where, how can I serve you and be that compassionate, kind creature to somebody? And my worth comes from that. It doesn't come from how much money I just made eight hours ago or how cool I am or how good I am at something. I think that's an honest conversation that everybody needs to have with themselves. It's a difficult one. And I appreciate and respect that you have a, a strong hold on to what that means now. I think that's cool. I appreciate that you are unashamed to talk about it. And I dig that. So thank you. Thank you. It's definitely been a journey. And there's still a lot that I'm still learning. And these are conversations I get to have with women all the time who are trying to figure out their lives and trying to figure out their relationships and trying to figure out what their next steps are and, and just working through that. Like they are, these are hard conversations that I think a lot of people don't want to have. We're in cancel culture, right? We want to avoid taboo topics and we don't want to, we don't want to have the hard conversations. And that's, it's disheartening and it's sad to see. But I think when going back to your original question, what can we do about this? It starts with us. It starts with, I can't change everybody else, but I can take agency over myself and my beliefs. I can make my own decisions and formulate my own opinions. And I don't have to live in a, in a place of fear of what are my friends or family going to think of me based on the decisions that I make or I choose to believe in. And if they do, I'm sorry, but are those people that deserve to be in your life? It's okay to do your own research and figure out what is truly important to you? Where do your values in your world's life lie? Or where do yours and your husband's or your family's lie? And you can come together as a unit and you can decide for yourselves what is best for you. If you want, if one of you wants to stay at home with the kids or you both want to go work, it shouldn't matter what society is pushing on you or what the PTA, PTO, PTA moms or whatever are like trying to say. Or what you're seeing on social media. And it's like social media is so destructive. It just fills our heads with the way that everybody thinks that we should be living and operating. And that takes our agency away just in itself. I couldn't have said it better. I normally ask something to close out. What is like the one thing that anybody who is listening could take away from you specifically? It, do you think that would be it? I think that's a really good place to start. I think having my own trials and tribulations and everything that I've learned in life and literally being that person that was a slave to everything else. The government was my master, right? The military was my master. Toxic, abusive relationships I got stuck in. For 31 years of my life, I didn't have 
a voice. I wasn't allowed to have an opinion. I wasn't allowed to follow my passions and my ambitions. And it wasn't until I had to override those things and I had to make really hard decisions and start over multiple times. I had to lose everything I had multiple times to really dig deep and figure out what fulfills me and what is truly going to make me happy. And I don't have to go through 50 more years of this life the way that I've been told I have to live it. I get to choose what makes me happy. I get to choose the people that are in my life, that are in my circle. I get to choose where my identity comes from and know that it's in Christ or my kids or my family or whatever that is for you. And that it doesn't have to come from the societal norms. And if more people had the courage and the confidence to make those decisions for themselves and their families, I think a lot more people would be happier and way more fulfilled. You're never more than a day away from reinvention. And even starting from square one and like getting down to what's truly important to you is usually a much better place to start than a lot of the other things that get in the way or distract us. Like I said, Amanda, I really appreciate you coming on and having a chat with me today. I, what can myself or the audience do to be useful to you? I think one thing that's really on my heart is working with women in domestic violence situations and having lived through that myself and so much. I have a lot of people that ask, hey, how can I help with that? And it's not so much about helping me, but it's about helping them. If there's somebody that you know or see that is in one of these circumstances or relationships where there is a lot of toxic attributes that you're seeing or abusive behaviors that you're seeing with a friend or a family member, a lot of times we get stuck in it longer than we should because we don't have the validation that we need. We're convinced that what we're experiencing is okay and it's normal. And it's not just on the women. Men are going through it tenfold than they ever were before. It's not just women in domestic violence. It is a lot of men too. Speaking up and actually saying something to that person. Because there were times I would just beg that I wish somebody would say something. Just validate me. Tell me that you see what I'm experiencing. Tell me that I'm not crazy for feeling these ways. And when you don't have anybody do that and everybody just turned a blind eye, you get stuck in it because you're like, maybe it is me. Maybe I am overreacting. Maybe he or she is not that bad. Have the conversation with the person. Validate their experiences. Take the risk that it might jeopardize your friendship, but it might also save someone's life. And be there for each other. You have to create a tribe and a community around yourself and your family nowadays. You need that especially with the climate that we're living in. Create that tribe, create that community and look out for each other and validate, validate each other's experiences. Everybody wants to be right and it's all about us. And if we could put our pride aside sometimes or those fears, like you don't even know the impact you can make on someone's life. That's so powerful. It's easy to turn a blind eye and maybe have the belief that somebody else will say something or maybe it's obvious or it's not my place or there's 
all of the excuses in the world to not say something. But like you said, in those types of situations, there's quite literally life on the line. And so there's nothing that's more important than that. Like you said, even being willing to jeopardize the friendship, most people won't say that. So that's absolutely true. We do have to plug your business, Athena Tactics, Meridian, Idaho. If anybody wants to come and learn how to shoot guns, talk about just briefly what your offering is and then maybe where people can find you. Yeah. So I have women and family focused, couples, families, children, gun safety. If you're brand new and you don't even know where to start, I, that's, I love introducing people to firearms. I have a very specific way about how I go through my training programs and I'm really passionate about it. Situational awareness, concealed carry training, defensive training, home defense plans customized to where you live, gun safety in the house with your children, taser training, and then the mental and emotional side of things. Let's have these hard conversations. Let's start identifying these traits that we're seeing, the societal threats that we face every day, not just on the physical level, but working through that side, through seminars and workshops, working with children's organizations, universities, corporations who want to do active shooter training, nurses, hospitals who need to train their staff on de-escalation, which is a really big thing when you work with the mental health community. So they're this in the most humble way. There's not a lot that I can't do. It's just about customizing it to what somebody really wants and then focusing on specifically that. I appreciate the honesty and, and ownership over that. That's a cool thing and definitely worth checking out. I know that you also have some strong feelings about a particular financial financial literacy and youth entrepreneurship program. You want to plug that? I do. Nonprofit is near and dear to my heart. Next to everything that I, that I do with women and families, I love serving the nonprofit community and I love business. I always would say if I ever got shot or something happened and I couldn't work anymore, I was going to start a business. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I was going to do it. So there's this nonprofit that I'm bringing to Idaho uh, that's never existed here in the state before. And it's a financial youth literacy and entrepreneurship program. It teaches Kent early on financial literacy skills, all about what interest is, a savings account, what debt is, how to go into a bank and pitch for a loan and what does paying that loan back mean? Uh, and then the entrepreneurship side, it teaches them how to start a business through a business plan. What does marketing mean? How do you find the right location for your business? How do you build a business? They go through the program, they learn all the modules, um, they learn all these lessons. And then while they're learning it, they're actually building their business in the essence of a lemonade stand. And then there's one day of the year in Treasure Valley that will have Lemonade Day. All the kids in the program go out. It's their grand opening. They have to find a business in the community that they want to set up in front of. They have to go to a bank and pitch for a loan, get the loan, use it to start their business. Afterwards, they have to pay the bank back. We have Lemonade Day and the community goes out and supports them. And they get the actual experience of learning everything that goes into starting and launching your own business. And I'm really excited about it because I think that our youth needs this, especially in a community that's so small business driven. That's absolutely true. The Valley needs something like that. And I couldn't agree more that business ownership is certainly the, the path to freedom and that we need to be pushing that down the wire and talking about that as early as possible. Amanda, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. I appreciate your time as well today. Fun, hard topics to to talk about that I think we don't get to talk about often, but definitely need some attention. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Your listenership helps me better educate people like you and the rest of our nation's military, both past and present, on building a successful life outside of military service. If you're looking for more ways the top vets are leading more effective lifestyles, building businesses, and using the resources designed specifically for you, press here for a selection of some of the best clips. Be sure to like this video and subscribe to the channel to stay up to date, and I will be talking with you soon.